Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Brian Christian will join us to discuss the alignment problem. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the field of AI is in crisis. Breakthroughs in the field of machine learning have caused problems, ones which have been dealt with in swift fashion, but how will they continue to proliferate? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Brian Christian. He's the author of the claimed bestsellers, The Most Human and Algorithms to Live By, which have been translated into 19 languages. He's currently a visiting scholar at the University of California, Berkeley, and he has written the new book, The Alignment Problem, Machine Learning and Human Values. And Mr. Christian, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, a lot of people are being touched by AI in many different ways these days and becoming a lot more attuned to its problems. Why you decide to put this book together? Yeah, well, the original seed or inspiration for this book came from an experience that I had in 2014. I was at a Silicon Valley investor book club that was talking about my first book, and they had invited Elon Musk to come, knowing his interest in AI. And to my astonishment, he showed up and he started buttonholing everyone about this question of what are we going to do about AI? And sort of challenged everyone in the room. There was a moment where he sort of refused to let anyone else leave at the end of the night until we had either given him a sound argument why we shouldn't be worried or one idea about what we could do about it. And, you know, I was a little bit chagrined to not have either a good counterargument or a constructive suggestion. And that just sort of lingered in my mind as I was finishing my previous book. And I started to see around 2016, kind of these two intersecting trends. One was that there was this increasing concern uh, around ethical issues in AI. So you're seeing things like facial recognition, working differently on ethnic minorities, issues of fairness in terms of criminal justice, how uh, machine learning and statistics are used there. And then at the same time, the people who were worried about kind of the farther future issues around AI safety, that started ripening into an actual scientific discipline. And so you start having these initial conferences, initial scientific grants getting issued, and really this first generation of graduate students working their way up the ranks focused on this question of not how do we increase the capabilities of AI, but how do we make it safe? How do we make sure that it does what we want and only what we want? And that's really where the book begins for me, is what what is our plan? And again, so much of the problem is that there wasn't so much a plan going in and the focus on the technology, technology driven and unnecessarily consideration of what actually goes into these systems. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on companies to now pay attention to these issues. Do you think that they're starting to take heat in a serious way? Yes, I do. I mean, I, to your point, the co-founder of Skype, Jan Tallinn, uses this analogy of a rocket, AI being like a rocket. And he says, 
imagine if 99% of the people will focused on making the engine bigger and only 1% of the people wanted to put, you know, fins on the side to actually <laughs> steer it and make sure it didn't go off course. And I think that was a, a pretty accurate assessment of where AI was in around the year 2015, uh, 2016. And we really are in a, in a different world at this point. There has been a substantial shift within the field itself in terms of research priorities. If you go to the major conferences, you're now seeing entire workshops and tracks of conference papers on this question of safety. And so there really has been a culture shift, I think, within the field. And I think that extends also to industry. Um, you're seeing groups within Google, within Facebook, explicitly organized around both the safety question and also the ethics question of what are the human impacts of deploying certain algorithms. And there's, I think, a, a widespread sense that we really do need to think more carefully than we have been when we deploy these things at scale. Sort of define the the issue here. I mean, there's a certain type of AI, this machine learning. It's a certain type predicting uh, facial recognition, but also what kind of ads you're going to see on Google. These are kind of the issues that we're we're talking about, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So there are three main genres of machine learning. We we could drill down into that if you want. There's unsupervised learning, supervised learning, and reinforcement learning. But the basic idea is developing a system that can learn by examples. So instead of programming, you know, in the traditional sense of writing code that says if X, then Y, you know, go to Z, you have a system that's initialized in a random state and you just start showing it examples. Um, you know, I want, to, I want you to categorize this image as a dog. I want you to categorize that image, you know, as a car. And you hope that it can take the hint. And so part of the question, which is this idea that's sometimes known in the field as the alignment problem, is, is the pattern that the system is learning in fact, the pattern that you're that you're hoping it can learn. And there are you talk to any researcher or practitioner in their field, they will have, you know, their own personal set of horror stories of cases where the system found some loophole or took some kind of easy shortcut that they weren't expecting. So, I mean, this is a, a trivial example off the top of my head, and, and we can get into the more sort of ethically uh, significant ones in a second. But there was one researcher the University of Oregon, who was doing his PhD thesis on how to recognize the presence of an animal in a photograph versus like an empty landscape. And he thought he was training the system to identify fur textures and eyes and facial features and all these things. But when he began using so-called saliency techniques to figure out what parts of the photograph the network was focusing on, he noticed that it was exclusively looking at the background of the picture. So the network had determined that when you have an animal in the picture, the background is blurry. But when you have an empty landscape, the background is in focus. So he thought he'd built an animal detector, but he'd really built a blur detector. And so stories like this are quite common. And of course, as these systems increasingly touch human lives in these ethically significant ways, morally significant ways, those sorts of problems become a lot more serious. It is sort of a serious issue because the input that's chosen to go in can be biased. So if you're not sort of attuned to what you're putting in, you're, you may be biasing the system in terms of what it learns. That's exactly right. And I think the field historically has been a little bit complacent about just taking data sets wherever they were available. So 
one example of this is uh, there's a, a face data set called Labeled Faces in the Wild, or LFW. And this was put together in the late 2000s by scraping, uh, I believe it was Google News images and captions. So someone had the clever idea of newspaper article captions often identify the person in the photograph. So we can get labeled faces at scale by just scraping newspaper articles. And that was a very clever way to generate a huge data set that was too big to otherwise have been created by hand. But it was only later that people started analyzing, well, who and what is actually in this data set? And for example, an analysis just a few years ago discovered that because this was, again, newspaper articles from the late 2000s, there were two times as many images of George W. Bush as there were of all black women combined. And that's not a bias that the programmers introduced. That's just what the media was portraying in you know, front page news articles in the late 2000s. But I think there's a, a cautionary tale here for the machine learning community, which is you know, think twice before you just go online and grab the most cited data set and start building your face recognition system on top of that. Because often these things get developed in and used in ways that are significantly different than the original context in which it was the data set was assembled. You know, maybe it was assembled for purely research purposes and someone goes along and wants to make an actual deployed system and they just use the data set that's sitting around. That can be a uh, very dangerous. I mean, not only that, of course, there's always trade secrecy that they may not even want to reveal what data set they're using. So you're not really aware where this algorithm's coming from and was used to create it. That's exactly right. And so there's, you know, a whole separate vein of research into how do we take a trained model? And let's say we don't have access to the data on which it was trained, which is often the way it works. Are there things that we can do to visualize what sorts of patterns the network might have learned. So there are a number of really interesting techniques here in getting a network that's originally trained to categorize images. And if you kind of bend its function in a certain way to get it to generate images, um, and there are a bunch of clever ways of doing that, you can get the network to sort of hallucinate examples of the, each of its categories. And that's, you know, a somewhat crude and approximate way, but that gives you a little bit of insight. So there was a famous example where a team from Google had had this classifier. And one of the categories, for whatever reason, it had was dumbbells. And so they started generating images of dumbbells. And what they noticed was that every single image of dumbbells had a muscular arm attached to it, just this disembodied muscular arm. So it's kind of amusing. I mean, these images are very surreal and, and uh, kind of unforgettable. But it told them something from a safety perspective which is that this network probably won't recognize dumbbells if they're on the floor. It won't recognize them if they're on a rack, things like that. And so you can imagine similar techniques if hypothetically you ask it to generate faces and all the faces it generates are white men, then that's telling you something about there probably being some sort of bias in, in the patterns that it's responding to. Do you think are some of the more ethically challenging examples that you've come across in, in researching this problem? I mean, there are many, many ways that this manifests. Um, so we're seeing various jurisdictions, county, state, and nationwide using statistical risk assessments to determine pretrial detention and things like bail and parole and so forth. But maybe, you know, maybe the most visceral example would be the case of the pedestrian 
Elaine Hertzberg, who was killed in Tempe, Arizona, by the the research uh, self-driving car from Uber. So the National Highway Transportation Safety Board review just came out a few months ago, or at the end of last year, I should say. It's very illustrative, I think, to read that report, um, because it really gets into the details of what was happening in the system in the seconds before the crash. And there are many different intersecting components. But I think one thing that's really significant is, first of all, the system had had never been trained to see a jaywalker. So it had a very strong link between crosswalks and an expectation of seeing a pedestrian, which means that if you see a pedestrian outside that context, sort of all bets are off. So this is this is a case where, you know, transparency methods that generate hypothetical pedestrians, if it showed that every single one was on a crosswalk, that would have been uh, an early warning indicator. There was also, it was significant that the the woman was walking a bicycle. So the system had a category for pedestrian, it had a category for cyclist, but it didn't necessarily know what to do with someone who had a bicycle but wasn't riding the bicycle. And so part of what you saw when you looked at the system trace was it the, the system kept flip-flopping between, I think this is a someone walking, no, I think it's someone riding a bike, no, I think it's just a piece of you know debris or something blowing across the road. And each time it changed the category, it would reset its motion prediction. And so it kept essentially forgetting its previous predictions of where this entity was going to go. And there's more to say. We could do an entire podcast on that one, you know, 10 second span of time. But one of the things that is increasingly important in machine learning safety is this question of uncertainty. So if the network is flip-flopping between different categorizations, that in itself is already a reason to slow down. And I think that is a lesson, obviously, one wouldn't want to have learned it the way that we did. But that message, I think, has really been taken to heart um, in thinking about this interaction between the impact that a system could have if it takes a certain action and its degree of certainty around that action. And so there's a there's a whole research area kind of opening up around this question of how do we quantify a model's uncertainty and then what do we do with that information? And hitting the brakes literally or figuratively is a good place to start. How is the industry, do you think, moving towards this? Or do you think they're slowing down in terms of the ways that AI is implemented in the world? Or are they aiming for greater transparency in terms of how they're training systems? Or are they trying to make better systems that maybe make use of hybrid type learning where you have some that is learning and some that you've actually programmed in? Yeah, you see, you see differences in philosophy also between, to use an example, Tesla and Waymo. Tesla is kind of famously takes this very strong approach towards machine learning where they say, we want to learn all the rules. You know, um, we don't want to hand program in different logic about what the system should do. We should learn learn that all by observing people. In practice, I'm not sure if they, they go all the way to that extreme. And then Waymo is the opposite, where they're very invested in the, what you might think of sort of the old school approach of really trying to detail these scenarios and not just let the system kind of make make these inf- inferential leaps. It's not clear to me that from looking at industry or looking at you know the actual research coming out, it's not clear that anyone's slowing down. So uh, I don't think that's happening. But what I see is a real investment in this area of safety that, you know, if you look at companies like DeepMind, 
in London or OpenAI in San Francisco, there is a dedicated safety team. And I think that is in itself a very significant change, that it there is a new job description in the industry. You can be a safety engineer, you can be a safety research scientist. And so in many ways, we're at the very beginning of this new field. And while in relative terms, it's grown very rapidly in the last several years, I think in absolute numbers, it's still a small group of people working in this area. And so one of the things that I hope to do within the book is to show people, either people who are already in industry or computer science undergrads coming up and thinking about what they want to work on, that this is a this is both a really exciting area and also a really important area. What about the other question of making sure that the data sets that go in are inclusive, that have the, the type of data that you want in terms of training the system to actually spit out what you want it to learn, you know? Yeah, I think that's an increasing focus as well. And I think we're seeing a, an investment in the concept of inclusivity, both within the data sets and also within the field itself. So I think about things like, for example, the Black and AI organization, which has done a lot to expand the diversity of the actual attendance at industry conferences. And I think, unfortunately, if you look at computer science as a field, it's still not particularly representative of the makeup of the country or the world as a whole. And that, But I think that is something that's changing rapidly. So we're seeing increased attention and increased importance being placed on this question manifested, yes, not only in the data sets, but also in the actual industry. Now, the alignment problem, where do you think it's going? What do you think the big challenges are going to be going forward? And how well poised do you think we will be to address all these issues? I'm certainly more hopeful than I was four or five years ago, because I think we really have seen like an, an incredibly dynamic movement in response to some of these concerns. But the concerns are totally real. And, you know, in some ways, there's a little bit of a race condition between the actual technological progress on the one hand and the progress of the safety research. So which which will win that race, you know, is is a little bit of an open question. I think looking ahead, I mean, specifically, I can point to particular things that we're seeing now, the rise of these so-called big transformer networks in the field of computational linguistics, so things like GPT-3, for example, at OpenAI. In general, as AI systems, as machine learning systems get more capable, we are going to find ourselves in this position where it's ever more difficult to articulate exactly the things that we want them to do. Um, so there's this question, for example, in the, in the language space of GPT-3 is not particularly safe in the sense that sometimes it starts saying things that are really objectionable or present a worldview that's in some ways kind of uncomfortable because it's it's really just synthesizing the entire internet, uh, which is full of all sorts of corners. <laughs> um, and there is this question of how do you, quote unquote, align one of these giant language models? How do you turn into you know actual objective functions or parameters a sense of, well, here here is how we'd like this language model to behave. Here's what we think of as good speech, whether that's merely speech that's safe for kids or speech that's kind of professionally appropriate or whether we have a specific task in mind, like we want to make a good summary or tell a good story or whatever. So this question of 
how do we get these objectives into these systems, even when those objectives are difficult for us to articulate, they're difficult for us to demonstrate in some cases? That is very much an open question, and I think that's where we're headed next with all of this. We were just talking with Brian Christian. He's the author of the new book, The Alignment Problem, Machine Learning and Human Values. Mr. Christian, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.